Hello, and welcome to the second season of Genetically Speaking, the podcast for the American Society of Human Genetics, where we explore the human stories behind human genetics and genomics research. I'm your host, Chris Gunter. Today, we are excited to be discussing a paper published in 2021 in the American Journal of Human Genetics entitled Host Genetic Effects in Pneumonia. The short title is not an indication of what's in it, though. This is a large-scale examination of many genomes. We have with us today two of the authors, Piper Bilo and Hong Shin Chen. Welcome to both of you, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. The first question I had is, you cover this, I think, in some length in your introduction, but for people who might not have read it yet, what led you to select this research topic? Yeah, so we actually have a, a project that's ongoing in the lab that includes looking at both single variant analyses, phenome-wide, as well as gene-based tests, looking at functionally oriented analyses of, of gene function um, for predicted genetically regulated expression phenome-wide. And then in addition, um, looking at how shared segments, so regions of the genome that can be um, identified as being identical between people due to distant relatedness and using those patterns of genomic sharing due to distant relatedness to map causal genetic factors for disease in the biobank phenome-wide. And since we were already doing these analyses across the entire medical phenome, uh, the pandemic and the, and the sudden interest in infection, the infectious disease part of the phenome kind of rose to the top. And so we ended up prioritizing looking at some of those results first. That's great. So did the study go as you expected or were there surprises, challenges during the process? Yeah, so in our GWAS, we see a very strong signal from the fibrosis gene in European American. And then we try to replicate that gene in other biobanks like Baomi or Bank. But we cannot successfully replicate the signal in any other biobank. That's really disappointing for us, given that such high p-value. And we try to find out the reason why we cannot see it in other data sets. After discussing with some experts at Vanderbilt, we realized that Vanderbilt has a systole fibrosis center and conducts some related research. And that's why we have more cystic fibrosis tension in our data set and over the chance to see such strong effect. That's really interesting. I mean, I have to say that when I um, was reading the paper and got to the point where you were talking about genome-wide hits for CFTR and, and, and sickle cell trait, I just was like, I made the chef's kiss gesture again. It was just, it was so beautiful. So yeah. did you expect to find that? Or was it more a case of, oh, right, this makes sense once you got it? The latter. Um, I think we went in not really knowing what we would expect to see. There haven't been a lot of genome-wide association analyses of pneumonia or other infectious diseases. Um, and this one was one of the largest and the most diverse. And so we really kind of went in without a lot of priors for what to expect would come out. But like you said, similarly, <laughs> when we first looked at the the Manhattan plots and saw where the peaks resided and which analyses, which ethnic groups, um, uh, you know, ancestral lineages were, were coming in for those analyses. We immediately, we didn't even have to look up the genes. We already knew what was going to be driving it. And it made, you know, perfect sense to us that, that these would be risk factors. Absolutely. And just to, uh, just to, for those who may not have read the paper yet. So the, what you found was that there was a really strong signal for make sure I get this right, susceptibility to pneumonia to CFTR in European Americans, 
but severity of pneumonia to sickle cell uh, trait to the HBB gene in African-Americans. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. So what do you think are the major implications of this research? Let's start first with human genetics and genomics. I think that it's the, the current pandemic has really shown a light on spaces in genomic research that there is still a lot of opportunity for novel discovery. And I think this paper um, is a great example of that. One of the limitations of many non-biobank based or, or non-electronic health record based research projects is that there are inclusion and exclusion criteria, right? And so normally if you're going to do a study of lung function or lung health, you're going to want to do that analysis in a set of people that are not necessarily representative of the general population. Um, and you might exclude people with known severe genetic disease. That's the most common kind of study design you'll see for um, the kind of ascertained cohorts for particular phenotypes. But an advantage of doing this kind of work in biobanks is that we're able to actually make choices about that on the fly. So we can do a take all comers approach, discover downstream effects and sequela of, of large effect genetic diseases that would never get picked up um, in a, a cohort study that was designed around looking at these variations um, in sort of what you might consider to be, um, you know, people of without pre-existing known genetic conditions. And so that enables us to make really important and meaningful discoveries that would otherwise have been missed. I think that is a, a key take-home message from this project. Yeah. Absolutely. And then I also wanted to ask about the, and you talked about this a little, the implications in light of the pandemic. And, and more specifically, I was thinking of your statement at the end in the discussion that future studies will be needed to establish whether these carriers of both CFTR and, and sickle cell trait exhibit a silent heightened risk for poor outcomes from COVID-19 as well. So that made me think of in the last week as, or two as we're recording this, there was a large, very large study that came out that reported that they looked for significant COVID-19 risk hits by GWAS and they weren't able to find anything major. So would you have, how do you feel that your study relates to what it could teach us in light of the pandemic? And then would you have expected the genes that you found in your study to come up in a GWAS for COVID-19 risk? I think that's a fantastic question. And I think the one of the real challenges that we face in, in genetics and genomics is that uh, it's really difficult to prove a negative. Once we find an effect, you know, we found something positive, that's a result and, and we can build from there. But the absence of that effect could be due to a wide variety of, of confounding factors. It could be that the, the right ancestral haplotypes aren't present in a way that's enriched enough to be able to detect effects from those. It could be that the type of arrays that most of the COVID studies that were contributing data were either imputed to um, reference genomes that were not sufficiently enriched for certain rare variants. I mean, the, the main cystic fibrosis driving variant is actually an indel and, and we know arrays don't capture indels very well. Um, and so one of the great advantages that we had was that BioView actually 
enriched, they, they deferentially selected for people with African heritage, and they also um, differentially selected for sick people. And the data set is, is large and is genotyped on an array called the Illumina Mega Array, which has all of the content of the exome array, which gives us a lot more resolution on some of the most rare variation in, in the genome. And so sometimes a, a smaller biobanking array might not be as effective at, at capturing some of those rare variant effects. So there's a lot of potential explanations. It could be the wrong population. It could be the wrong ancestral groups. It could be the wrong arrays. It could be the wrong imputation panel. It, it, a lot of these pieces come together to explain to, to be possible explanations for a lack of signal. But of course, it also could just be that they really truly don't have a signal there and that these genes aren't driving a lot of COVID severity or COVID risk. And that could also be a very, you know, real explanation for the kinds of patterns that we're seeing in these results. Yeah, and Hong Sin, did you want to add anything to what what your paper, the implications for the pandemic? Yeah, I think it's really good thing, a uh, really good example to demonstrate how do we know more about the human genomics and can help us to fight with the virus or treat patients. And yeah, I think more paper will give more, more comprehensive um, picture of the whole things about human genome. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. We always need more research, right? That's, that's, yeah. that's the one constant thing. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Yeah. So did you do any science communication around the paper and how did that go for you? Um, I tweeted about it a little bit and we also um, had a, a, some write-ups in some of our uh, Vanderbilt and that in our Vanderbilt periodicals. And, and then that got picked up by some of the broader audiences. Um, and the reception of it, I think, has been overwhelmingly positive. It's been picking up some citations and in, it seems like the context of the work has already been useful to other investigators um, who are treating patients. There's There was a pediatric case recently where the, um, where the child died of COVID and, and had sickle cell. Um, so there's been some, you know, interesting follow-up results that are adding additional context to our findings. Yeah, I, I wanted to pick up on that. Do you, what sort of follow-up would you like to see? Do you think that this needs to be taken into clinical considerations around COVID or pneumonia? Yeah, that's a really tough question. I think there's, for your average genome-wide significant peak in a gene whose biology is not necessarily well studied or, or whose signal we don't necessarily understand very well, you know, I would be one of the people that would be really reticent to say that there's a direct application to, you know, benchside treatment. But because the main signals that we found were in genes that have been so well studied and are so well understood and characterized where there already exist clinical tests for these genes, I think the potential is really there for um, honing in a focus on understanding the nature of the, the the pneumonia risks and and for pneumonia severe pneumonia hospitalized pneumonia um and how it relates to you know both of these regions of the genome yeah that's i think that's really important that yeah 
since we all want to translate our work. So Hong Sen, I know you were a student in epidemiology at the time. Are you still uh, a trainee? Uh, no, I just graduated last year. Yay, congratulations. I'm making <laughs> a pause for the video. Um, so what did this process teach you about research that you'll take with you into your career? Yeah, so it's a very unique experience to conduct studying in such a short time and try yeah. to respond to the public health emergency. And I found that the U.S. Trans Health Record is a really, really good resource to conduct human genomic study for all kinds of phenotypes. But I think the main challenge would be to identify the comparable case and control. Since the hospital-based bulbing is not well-designed AP study. So without a clear definition for case and control may introduce some bias into the results. So knowing the potential and the limitation of the EHR and biobank is the most important lesson I learned from this study. And I'm pretty sure I will keep working with biobank and EHR in my future career. Yeah, that's great. And also we learned that doing research studies like this might, <clears throat> excuse me, bring surprises or challenges that we didn't expect along the way, right? Did you yeah. have any other big surprises in terms of writing the paper that that you thought, oh, wow, next time I'm going to do that or I'm not going to do that? Yeah, so it's really challenging for me to write the whole manuscript in such a short time. So I mean, to find a good advisor is really important thing in this career, in this field. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Having a good advisor is so important. Having a good team is so important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I agree with you that no matter what time, but even more so in a time like this, it's also difficult to focus. So I applaud you all for, for writing a manuscript in this, in this short period of time. So what new research are you each currently pursuing? Hung Shin, you want to tell them about our, our next big COVID project? Yeah. So recently we have the chance to get some pre and post COVID bar sample. And then we are working on doing the RNA sequencing and try to compare the COVID case group to the control, healthy control um, in their gene expression pattern. And so, um, yeah, we try to find out if there are any effect of the COVID-19 infection on genetic regulation and to see any gene may still has upregulated or downregulated after the infection and what's the cause sequencing after that. Oh, wow. Yeah, what's what's so cool about that project is to actually have longitudinally collected specimens. So we have whole blood stored in PAX gene tubes from prior to the pandemic in a cohort of about 5,000 Mexican-Americans living at the U.S.-Mexico border in Brownsville, Texas, which is a part of the U.S. that has been devastated by COVID and the outcomes have been absolutely horrendous. And so now we're able to follow up this longitudinal cohort, um, the Cameron County Hispanic cohort, and bring the participants back in, check on them and, and see how they're, you know, whether they've had COVID, whether they haven't, we're doing antibody tests that are able to differentiate vaccinations from actual infections, taking a new RNA sample from them so we can compare pre and post infection and pre and post pandemic specimens in people who were never infected to look at the differential change over time in those that were sick with COVID. It's such an elegant study. We're ecstatic and, um, we're, we're thrilled to have been the recipient of a large gift from Google to support doing the RNA sequencing. So again, this is another example of where sometimes, you know, I don't want to say a word against the NIH, but that doesn't always move the fastest. <laughs> and so, um, you know, to, to write a grant, get it submitted, wait for it to go to study section, wait for the funding decisions to be made can take six months sometimes. And, um, and so to be able to 
uh, work with a company like Google and have them there give us a, a large foundation gift to support our research immediately was um, a, an enormous, enormous benefit to us. And so that work, um, we're, we've got the first 500 RNA specimens rolling off the machines this week. And Hengshen even already has a, you can't stop him. He already has some preliminary <laughs> data that he's going to submit to ASHG. So for those listening that are going to be at the meeting, uh, stay tuned. We're really, we're really pumped for where this work is going to take us. Oh, that's so great. I think most of us would, would love to see the outcome of that. And speaking as someone who's employed by NIH, I'm going to try not to take that personally, Piper, but yeah. it's all good. <laughs> So I'm really glad that you were able to get that funding through anywhere. So uh, thank you so much for being with us. It's just been a joy to talk to you and I encourage people to check out your paper. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you.